Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 279, Response to Burgos on Creation and the One God versus the One Lord, Part 2. In this episode of the Trinity's Podcast, I continue my response to a podcast critique of some of my work by pastor and apologist Dr. Michael Burgos. Biblical Unitarians... They almost believe in adoptionism by exaltation, it seems to me. Uh, oh, dear. It's kind of an interesting idea where because Jesus is exalted, the creature Jesus can be worshipped, which totally obliterates the first and second commandments. But I suppose they would have to say that the first and second commandments are abrogated in some way. So usually adoptionism and historical theological scholarship means something like the view that Jesus only became the Son of God after he proved his obedience to God somehow, such as maybe at his baptism or even at his resurrection or perhaps at some other point of his life. Of course, most biblical Unitarians are not adoptionists because we think that Jesus was the Son of God from the first moment of his existence in the sense that being the Messiah was his destiny, and also in the sense that it was God who miraculously caused Mary to become pregnant. Adoptionism, properly speaking, is really just kind of a distraction here. I guess his idea is that he thinks we think Jesus was made a god, because surely how could you worship Jesus unless he was made a god, or unless he was sort of combined into god or something like that? I mean, let's just pause here and look at the first and second commandments that Dr. Burgos says our view, quote, obliterates when we think that Jesus should be worshipped in addition to God. By the way, did you know that when God gave these commands, he actually gave them in English? It's true. I've got the audio to prove it. I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. In worshiping Jesus, are we having other gods in his presence or before him? No, Jesus isn't supposed to be a god. He's supposed to be the son of the one God. So we're not capitulating to the deities of the pagans, the deities of the nations here. That's what that first command's talking about, right? Only worship me, not all these alleged deities in the pantheons of the surrounding peoples. No, Jesus isn't any of those. He's the son of God. Second commandment, shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above, or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, or worship them, for I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God. Are we making idols in the form of anything in heaven or earth, etc.? No. There are a lot of people who have a problem with idolatry, including, but not limited to, Hindus, Buddhists, Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox Christians. But Unitarian Christians, as such, don't have any problem with idolatry. We are not bowing to an image or treating an image like an honored person, lighting candles to it, things like that. Such things were authorized at the Seventh Ecumenical Council in the year 787, but never mind that. What does this have to do with what we're talking about? I think Dr. Burgos is assuming that worshiping anyone other than the one God himself is a sin of idolatry, and so that's why it would run contrary to this command, but we just don't accept that. We would say that when God exalts his son to his right hand, that entails, that implies that he should be given divine honors. That's what it is to, so to speak, have that seat 
He's been called up to that seat, so he should be honored as one honors God, not confusing him with God, but just because one realizes this is God's will, that even as we honor the Father, so we should honor the Son. Is that idolatry? No. Is it by definition idolatry to worship anyone other than the one God himself? No, I don't think that is the definition of idolatry, and uh, we could argue further about that maybe another time, but I addressed the one passage that he would probably think has to do with that in Romans 1 in my presentation called, Who Should Christians Worship? So yeah, we don't think that Paul's assuming that he's another god or a lesser god or, well, any kind of god. He's just the unique son of God, but raised and put in the position of being Lord. But I suppose they would have to say that the first and second commandments are abrogated in some way. It looks like that doesn't clash with the first and second commandments, the worshiping Jesus and obedience to God. And so it looks like we don't need to say that they're abrogated either. The whole concept of unitarian agency, it just obliterates the, the second commandment. Oh, it, man, when, when God says, who is like me, you know, in Isaiah 48, we would have to say, well, God, actually, there are a few people like you. The angel of the Lord's a lot like you. He's called God. He receives worship. He freed the people from from Egypt in, in Judges chapter 2. Uh, his name is in you. He forgives sins. Uh, he blesses. He curses. He multiplies offspring. He's the covenant angel, right? You know, he's prayed to and all this sort of thing. And we'd also have to say, well, Jesus is often a lot like you too. In fact, he is the exact imprint of your nature. He is your very image. And so who is like you? Your son is like you. And if your son is a creature, that creates a lot of problems for the question of idolatry. You simply cannot have a prohibition of idolatry if, in fact, the biblical Unitarian contention regarding Christology is true. So here Dr. Burgos is just assuming without argument that necessarily any worship of a creature counts as the sin of idolatry. And that's just the very thing that we deny. Now, when God in the Old Testament says, no one is like me, in our view, he's asserting his own uniqueness, and presumably this is as against the alleged deities of the nations. In some sense, the angels are like God. Both can be called Elohim. But yeah, the gods of the surrounding nations don't compare to him. To be more specific, none of those are the unique creator of the heavens and the earth. None of those are provident over the course of history. None of those is a top-level authority in the universe whose power and domain are unlimited. And it is a New Testament theme that Jesus is like God. And this doesn't entail that, in our view, God was lying when he said, quote, no one is like me, who is there like me, and things like that. So he's not introducing an inferior divine being or some kind of exalted man using the terms in Israel and in, in, in the Israelites' most definitive creed while referencing the acts of creation. Because Paul says all things are from the Father and through the Son. Sorry, Dr. Burgos, but you're just assuming that this passage has to do with creation, which is the very point at issue. That you don't think that an exalted man could possibly be referred to as Lord, well, I think that's just not a New Testament position. You don't see anybody in the New Testament inferring from Jesus being called Lord that therefore he is fully divine, or that he's God, or that he's a person of the Trinity, or anything like that. When the Trinity's podcast returns, why should we think that this text is about the Genesis creation? Okay, so we're finally getting down to the point at issue regarding 1 Corinthians 8. Now, Tuggy responded and said, quote, The Genesis creation doesn't seem to be in view in this passage, but rather the current status of God in Christ and his Christ is. Now, this is entirely problematic. Not only does 
Paul recast the Shema here in, in, in its inclusion of the Father and Son as God and Lord, respectively. That hasn't been shown. But it, it nope. also identifies both the Father and Son as active mutually in creation and in a complementary way. And Question the, and the means by which Paul does this is he uses different prepositions to describe the creative act of God and uh, God the Son. Notice he's just still he presupposing the interpretation he wants. From whom are all things, and he notes that the Son is di u tapanta, the one through whom are all things. And so we have two different prepositions here, joined together with the uh, the neuter tapanta, the articular tapanta, meaning all things. The Father is the one from whom everything comes, and the Son is the one through whom everything comes. Okay, so this is not an argument for the creation interpretation. It's just a statement of that interpretation. So if we're having an argument, this is just begging the question. It's just assuming the very thing that needs proving. I explained last episode why it is we're looking for a way to interpret this as not having to do with the Genesis creation. We did it because both in Old and New Testament, there seems to be one creator, and this is Yahweh, also called the Father. Before we talk about these specific constructions, I should note that there's a bunch of other places in the Bible talking about the original creation, which use this same language. And so the notion that Paul's not talking about the Genesis creation here is, frankly, absurd. Not only that, but tapanta, all things, would require the creation itself. So at that point, we're just arguing against Paul, because all things means all things. I don't know why he's so smug at this point. Um, The phrase tapanta, all things, in Paul, it can mean all the things that God created, but it can also mean various other groupings. And you can just find this in any lexicon. I'm not sure I should go into it right now. But it's not like um, I'm introducing some arbitrary restriction here. All things in the unrestricted sense would include God himself. And so in that sense, if you say that God created all things, that would be false. Because there is something that God didn't create. God. Okay, but you say, no, we meant to exclude God. Right. You're assuming a domain. You're assuming a restriction for the all that you're mentioning. That's typically how we use words like all and none. So we might say, everyone knows who Donald Trump is. And if you say, well, what about this guy that lives in New Guinea? He doesn't know who Donald Trump is. Yeah, but maybe we just meant all Americans or all adult Americans or something like that, right? So we can look at the prologue of Hebrews. You know, God has created all things through His Son. I know Tuggy has a, a contention there right. regarding. I think it's Ionios about new creation. It's not the world; it's ages. That too is erroneous, especially if we look at how that term is used in Hebrews, and I would argue in the Pauline corpus. Yep, that's just more question begging. If you want to hear what I actually say about Hebrews one, you can check out Trinity's podcast episode two fifty nine. Who is the one Creator? Part two. Colossians 1, 13 through 17, not a, not a future creation, talking about the actual uh, Genesis creation there. Not a future creation, uh, we can look the, at the way that creation that's been accomplished. Language is used in Ephesians 3, 9 and other verses. Uh, wait, slow down, slow down. So Ephesians 3, 9 says, well, let's start in verse 8. He says, although I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to bring to the Gentiles the news of the boundless riches of Christ and to make everyone see what is the plan of mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Who does God refer to in that passage, Dr. Burgos? I think any New Testament scholar would say, and I think you and I would have to agree, that it refers to the Father. So this verse is just an example of a New Testament writer assuming that the one creator just is the Father himself. Interestingly, there's a later corruption of this very verse, Ephesians 3, 9. Someone back in the day inserted the phrase, by Jesus Christ. So it says, God who created all things. That's what's in basically any modern version. Whereas the King James has, God who created all things by Jesus Christ. They had a theology that required there to be a direct and an indirect creator. And so they inserted Jesus into it. Whoever corrupted the manuscripts in this way did it because they were feeling the force of my point. 
that the one creator of the Old Testament in the New Testament seems to just be the Father himself. The prologue of John, of course, there it's used emphatically in its cast in John 1-3, both positively and negatively, to prove that the that God, the Word, the Son of God, is the Creator. Yeah, the prologue of John is another conversation. Just notice that the prologue doesn't say that Jesus is the same person as the Word. It doesn't obviously have the Word as a literal person as opposed to a personification. But yeah, He's assuming what I would call a Trinitarian misreading of the prologue to John. The Word, the Son of God, is the Creator. Look, on the face of it, the Creator in the prologue to John is God, a.k.a. the Father. He creates all things through His Word. To be the Creator is to be where the buck stops. If you're the one, assuming it's a real person, a literal person, if you're the one through whom the creation was done— you're not the one creator. You're an instrument of the one creator. You're something close to the one creator. You're the second farthest back source of things. But the creator is supposed to be the ultimate source of things. There's usually an obfuscation here with Trinitarian theologians. They sort of talk as if the creation was somehow shared equally between Father, Son, and Spirit. But then they'll point you to a passage which, in their interpretation, says that the Father created through the Son. That doesn't make both of them the Genesis creator. It makes the father the Genesis creator. It's just that he did it indirectly through this other being. Again, it's just axiomatic that the Old Testament creator is the furthest back source. You can't say, okay, I know that God created, but who was doing it through God? Or who created him? Or things like that. Those questions are based on misunderstanding, right? But yeah, I mean, he's just not doing enough to mount a real case against my position. He's saying, look, there are all these texts that obviously talk about Christ as creator. And no, I don't agree about John 1. No, I don't agree about Hebrews 1. No, I don't agree about Colossians 1. Now, you can get to thinking it's obvious if you read this evangelical study Bible and this evangelical commenter and this evangelical scholar. And they say, yeah, obviously Christ is a creator in the New Testament and God created all things through him. Or even that the Father and Son are just equally well creator. You can get to thinking that's obvious when you have so many books on your shelf of learned people just saying that it's so. But we have to do better than that. We have to be willing to think outside the box if we're going to be good Protestants. Take an old Catholic interpretation that the book of Matthew teaches that Peter is the first pope. If you were just to judge by the learned books on your shelf in the year, say, 1500, all the scholars that you had access to, presumably in Latin, they'd be telling you that, yeah, this is what says that Peter is the first pope. But it ain't so. Still, if you were willing, in the year 1500, to treat that shelf full of learned tomes as written by fallible human beings, you might well have figured it out on your own. You might have read that chapter carefully in context and said to yourself, wait a second, there's no Pope here. There's no one bishop system of rulership assumed here. These Catholic interpreters who are so confident of their reading are just projecting later interests and later assumptions back onto this first century book. We're going to have to get more into the language. I'll do that in a bit. Especially since we have Hebrews 1, 10 through 12, which sort of fleshes out by means of Psalm 102 what that creative act looked like, which I should note that I've asked Dr. Tuggy several times on Twitter, is Hebrews 1, 10 through 12, is that referring to the new creation as biblical Unitarians like Anthony Buzzard typically contend, or is that referring to the original creation? The new creation, And like I have I asked that because I've written an article on this, and I've actually recorded a podcast or two on that very subject. I've demonstrated quite easily that that can't be referring about the, the new creation for a variety of reasons, and that's because the text, the language precludes it immediately. Okay, we'd have to see these arguments, wouldn't we, in order to evaluate them. But just to interject a note of doubt here, if you decide that you're going to talk about a second creation, you're going to use first creation language in a new way. So how could it be that the terminology is going to just obviously rule out that we're dealing with the second creation here? How could that be, given that in talking about a new creation, you're reapplying that old language? 
it looks like contextual factors are going to have to sort out which is meant, the original creation or the new creation. You can't just go by which terms are being used. And the reason I think that the new creation is in view and not the Genesis creation is that the whole context of Hebrews 1 and 2 is a context of this era, post-resurrection and post-exaltation. And so he's talking about the current status of Christ and how it's higher than that of any angel. It actually fits the passage better, in my view. Of course, people are going to be thrown off by the quotation from the psalm that he's talking about, which originally, yes, was about the Genesis creation and about Yahweh. But I argue that it's being reapplied here. And the idea is that the Son, in doing the work of new creation, is a fulfillment of that psalm. So the psalm is being treated as a prophecy. When the Trinity's podcast returns, honing in on exactly what 1 Corinthians 8.6 says. Okay, but going back to 1 Corinthians 8, it's clear that Dr. Burgos badly wants this battle of interpretations to be easily settled by just appealing to the grammar. So he breaks out the Greek again. Looking at the construction, the prepositions used here, right? You've got ex from ek, meaning from, right? Or out of. Out of the Father come all things. And then it's du tapanta. Dia is uh, the preposition when it is used with the uh, genitive. It is through, and it is a preposition that communicates personal agency. And so what we're being told in 1 Corinthians 8, 6 is that the Son of God is the one through whom all things have been brought into existence. Again, the word existence there is supplied by the translators. If you are not going to assume a Genesis creation reading of this, then you may decide that you don't want to translate it that way. To just render the Greek brutally literally here, to sort of half translate, what it says is, Yet to us, one God the Father, of whom the all, and we to him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom the all, and we through him. Is this talking about creation? Well, there's certainly nothing that demands that in the words that are employed. Maybe it's about creation, and maybe it's not. The phrase tapanta, the all, usually translated all things, can mean a lot of different things in Paul and in other New Testament writers. We'll talk about that in a minute. Now, I edit out a few bits here where he's just citing some lexicons about uncontroversial points. Here's the next substantial point that he makes. The construction here, all things are through the sun. It demands personal agency. This can't be an idealized notion of Christ that preexisted and that was the means through which God created all things. Yeah, it seems like there's personal agency here by Christ. There's personal agency here by Christ on my reading, too. I think he's assuming that a Unitarian here will have to say about 1 Corinthians 8 what Anthony Buzzard has said about Hebrews 1 verse 2, where he says that God has created with the Son in view. That's how he understands that verse. But if this is dealing not with the Genesis creation, but some other all things, then yes, they could be from the Father and through the Son, in a sense, literally, not just in foresight that he created on account of Jesus, meaning that knowing that, he, that Jesus would come in flesh, knowing all these things, he created the, uh, the world on account of Jesus in that way. Well, that would require a different construction. Uh, it would require dia not with the genitive, but with the accusative, and that is not what we have. And so um, quite clearly, then, Paul is not only including the Father and Son in his Christological recasting of the Shema, but he's also attributing them complementary acts of creation. 
except complementary acts of creation is totally not a biblical idea. In biblical theology, there's only one creator, not two or three of them, and uh, there aren't multiple actions which might be divided up among different agents. That's all just projected onto the passage. And it's not an argument in favor of his reading of the passage. Which not only proves the preexistence of Christ, which incidentally proves the deity of Christ, because our contention is that Christ preexisted the created order, and so uh, that would naturally demonstrate his deity. Well, you know, tell that to the many mainstream Christian theologians from the time of Justin Martyr through the time of the famous Eusebius, the church historian. They thought that the Logos was involved in creation, but not that it had always existed, and not that it was the one God himself. They thought this was a second and lesser deity, and yet this was the deity uh, through whom God created. So yeah, just pre-existing and pre-existing the creation, you can't infer just from that alone that this one is God. Another way of saying this is, if you thought that God created the cosmos through the pre-human Jesus, that would be consistent with a Unitarian view, a view on which the pre-human Jesus existed either eternally or at any rate from some time before the Genesis creation. We're saying that he's not a creature, and of course that's affirmed in the scriptures numerous places. When In Revelation 5, when everybody, when all of creation is worshiping God and the Lamb, <laughs> if, if the Lamb was a, a creature at that point, he would need to be a, a, among the worshipers, but clearly he's not. <laughs> well, there's an obvious quantification fallacy here, uh, despite the fact that you have people like James White proudly trumpeting this argument. I think more careful scholars don't. And so just by the fact that all creation is said to be honoring Jesus, it doesn't follow that Jesus isn't a part of the creation. Very often you'll refer to all of something and you'll be tacitly assuming some exception to it. So what if I said that uh, on inauguration day when Donald Trump was inaugurated as president of the United States, all the Trumps were there in the audience listening to him speak. Now, have I just implied that Trump is not one of the Trumps? I just said all the Trumps. Doesn't, doesn't all mean all? Well, look, all, I meant all the other Trumps, right? Now, if Jesus is a member of the creation, you can then say that all the creation is bowing to him, and you're not saying that he's bowing to himself, just because you mean all the rest of the creation. In the New Testament, Jesus is a man, explicitly. He's literally called a man more than once, and he's everywhere portrayed as a man. A man is just by definition part of God's creation. So it's not particularly concerned to assert that he's part of God's creation, but it does assume it. You might think the assumption comes pretty close to the surface when it says that Jesus in Colossians is the firstborn of all creation. Right? If you're the firstborn among the smiths, does that mean you're not a smith? No, the assumption is that you are a smith and that you have a privilege among the smiths as firstborn. Right? You get the chief share of the inheritance. So when it describes Jesus as the firstborn of creation, yes, that's saying something about his current exalted position. It's not really saying something about his birth or his creation or his origin, as scholars are at pains to point out. But yeah, it seems to go hand in hand with the assumption that he's one of the creatures. Well, of course he is, if he's a man. But then he can't be the creator if he's a portion of the creation. Just another reason to look at each of these small handful of alleged Christ creator texts and see if there's another way to read them. And back to that passage in Revelation, notice that the author of Revelation doesn't draw this conclusion. That because Christ is worshipped by all creation, therefore Christ is not a part of creation. No scriptural author does that. So not only do we see uh, Paul in, in identifying Jesus as Lord using a uh, the title from the Septuagint, identifying totally him as uh, mm -mm. the true God over and against the many lords and many gods of the pagans. This comes back to my argument he mentioned in the first episode and then chose to ignore when it didn't fit with his preferred interpretations of the New Testament. 
We know that Paul doesn't think that the one Lord and the one God are one and the same because he assumes there are differences between them. So it's just a misreading to collapse father and son into numerically one. And of course, identifying God the Father as God, that is the traditional apostolic way of referring to the Father and Son. Right. In the New Testament, there's one God, that's the Father, and then also there's one Lord, that's the Son. This one Lord is God's Messiah, and he's a man, so he's not God. He's God's anointed one, God's special agent, the Son of God in a unique sense, yes, but that doesn't entail having a divine essence. So now Dr. Burgos is going to discuss the hypothesis he has that Paul is this Trinitarian who maybe is a bit frustrated because he doesn't have 4th century and beyond terminology. He's trying to express his view. Okay, how would you look at this passage in light of that hypothesis? So let's think about this. If the apostles wanted to demonstrate both the deity of Christ and the deity of the Father while not confusing the persons— how would they do it? Well, the way they did it was using the the typical appellation for the Father is Hathaos, God, and the typical appellation in the New Testament for the Son is Hakurios, Lord. And once in a while you see, you know, Jesus being called, being called God and, and, and God Arguably. the Father being called Lord. Once yes, in a while for sure. You see this. Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't happen all the time, certainly, because the typical appellations are God and Lord, respectively. Yes, and sometimes an author like Luke will distinguish between the Lord God and the Lord Jesus because he knows the term Lord is ambiguous and he wants to clarify which one he has in mind when he says Lord. So he just adds a bit onto the term. Other cases, particularly in Paul, some of them are genuinely ambiguous. Scholars can legitimately wonder whether he's referring to God or to the Son of God. But all of this is perfectly consistent with Unitarian Christian views. The reason for that is to affirm the deity of both the Father and Son, while not confusing the persons. Well, that's quite a theory you've got there. That's one explanation of why the term Lord has become ambiguous. But there's a much simpler explanation, which is that they're appealing to Jesus's exaltation, as they would say, predicted in Psalm 110.1. Of course, there are lots of reasons to think that they don't think that Jesus is divine in the way that the one God is divine, such as believing that Jesus is limited in knowledge and just the fact that Jesus died. Biblical Unitarians attempt to capitalize on that and somehow demote Kyrios from uh, being a legitimate title of deity. But in so doing, they basically ignore the fact that the Septuagint is, is by and large, the vorilage of the Pauline Corpus and, and other books. Okay, well, that's a silly misdiagnosis. We know all about the Septuagint, of course, and we know that Paul and other New Testament authors refer to some Greek translation or translations of the Old Testament when they want to quote it. There's no demotion of the term. We know, just like any biblical scholar will tell you, that it can refer to God, it can refer to the Son of God, it can mean Master, and it can mean Sir. So where's this demotion of the term? Again, a legitimate title of deity. Is the term Lord such that it can be used to refer to the one God? Well, of course. That's a very common usage in the New Testament. Is it a legitimate title of deity in the sense that applying that to someone implies that that is God himself or that that is a fully divine being? Of course not, as illustrated by the case of Jesus. The term could be used of Jesus at any point in his career, but it's particularly used of him in his exalted state after, as Peter says in Acts 2.36, God has made him both Lord and Christ. And so that's my contention with regard to uh, 1 Corinthians 8.6. I think it's open and shut as far as what Paul is doing there. Uh, when he says, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist, I think that you would have to um, either, uh, as a biblical Unitarian, say, well, this isn't talking about the Genesis creation, which betrays the grammar, and uh, you would have to redefine all things to mean something other than all things. And then additionally, you would have to try to demote that term kurios into meaning some kind of honorific 
term like sir. And I think nope. that's real difficult in a context dealing with the question of idolatry and meat sacrifice to idols. And, it, and that's what makes this passage not what we're doing so much of a, a silver bullet when it comes to uh, the question of biblical Unitarianism. <laughs> okay. Well, he ends on a kind of uh, extremely overconfident note. It turns out that one of Unitarian Christians' very favorite biblical passages, and it is our favorite because it explicitly says what we think New Testament theology really is, the one God is the Father, that somehow this very passage, you know, is an easy uh, demolition of our views. And the reason it's an easy demolition of our views is because of an interpretation dreamt up by James Dunn and uh, carried on by N.T. Wright and others that here Paul is reformulating the Shema uh, right here in the context of this practical argument in just a couple of verses. He's taken all the same words that are in the Greek translation of the Shema and he's reconfigured them. Or maybe he's just presupposing that this should be done, that the Shema should be understood differently, but you just don't have to take it that way. And it's still my contention that as best I can tell, no one took it that way until Dunn did. Now, interestingly, in the little Twitter interaction that led to these two episodes of the Trinity's podcast and to Dr. Burgos's episode, someone suggested a counterexample to my claim. This is a guy named Nick Norelli. I don't know much about him except that he's an apologetics aficionado. Well, that and that he likes to buy a lot of theology books and flex them on social media, which is kind of unusual. Anyway... He went looking in patristic sources for an exception to my claim that, as far as I can tell, ancient writers do not say that Paul here is inserting Jesus into the Shema or revising Jewish monotheism and things like that. He chimed in with what he views as a counterexample. This is a passage by a guy named Theodoret of Cyrus, or Cyrus. He died sometime in the second half of the 5th century, and he was born in 393, so just after you start to see the dominance of the Nicene tradition based on the ruling and the follow-up by Emperor Theodosius. So he's only ever known Trinitarian Orthodoxy, kind of like Augustine, but a bit later. The passage says, Note once more the Apostle's wisdom, for having first demonstrated that the words Lord and God are synonymous, then he splits them up, calling the Father one and the Son the other. Well, I don't think this is the sort of passage I was asking for. I don't see talk about splitting the Shema or revising Jewish theology. If I understand what's going on based on the context of the time, he must think that the words Lord and God are synonymous in the sense that they both refer to the divine nature. And so he's saying, aha, Paul is calling both the Father and the Son by terms that refer to the divine nature. This is the obsession of Nicene writers to say that the Father and Son are clearly, clearly homoousion, that they are one usia, one essence, one substance. But, you know, I think a writer like Theodoret of Cyrus doesn't need to argue like people like N.T. Wright do. Theodoret just is going to smugly assume the authority of Nicene tradition He's going to believe that the first two ecumenical councils are authoritative. He doesn't need to come up with some newfangled argument for the deity of Christ based on this Shema insertion that's gone on in 1 Corinthians 8.6. On the surface level of language, it sounds kind of similar to the passages we're talking about, but I don't think it's really uh, an example of the kind that I was asking for. So, if you're listening, thanks, Nick. I appreciate it, but I'm going to have to stand by my claim that this is a newfangled reading of 1 Corinthians 8.6. When the Trinity's podcast returns, what Dr. Burgos doesn't understand about the Greek phrase tapanta, and I give my own suggestions about what Paul has in mind in this passage.
I want to explain how Dr. Burgos is misunderstanding quantification language and how it's used. And in fact, what he says about tapanta is really upside down. Typically by tapanta, Paul does not mean all the things in the heavens and the earth, like the sum total of the creation. Now, when someone just says, hey, look, man, all means all, don't you get it? They're the ones that don't get it. First of all, it's very rare that someone's using a word or phrase like all or everything in a completely unrestricted sense, because then it would include, for instance, God himself. So if you just mean all unrestrictedly and you say God created all things, that is false because God did not create himself. When someone uses a word like every or all, in most contexts, they're assuming some domain of restriction, all the things that is of a certain sort. And sometimes they'll tell you what domain of things they have in mind. And sometimes you just have to get it from the context. And sometimes the context doesn't make it 100% clear which grouping, which all the author has in mind. But when you look at the New Testament usage of all things, tapanta, by Paul, it's very interesting. So my first example is 1 Corinthians 15, 27, and 28. Paul says, For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that this does not include the one who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who put all things in subjection under him, so that God may be all in all. So this is talking about really the fulfillment of Psalm 110.1, where God says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is talking about the second part, where God is going to subject all things to the rulership of the Son of God. Now, what does it mean by all things? Are we to understand all the things that God created? Maybe. I mean, Christ is the head of the creation in, in a kind of absolute sense under God, of course. But you could also ask, you know, do things like rocks and cucumbers and trees, do those things really subject themselves to the Lord Jesus and accept his rulership? If that doesn't make sense, then the all things here could be all selves, basically. All people, all angels, all the creatures who need to obey God and put themselves under the lordship of Christ. There's nothing about the Genesis creation here. There's no reason to just assume that the all things is all the things which God created, um, but it's all the things which need to be members of Christ's kingdom, in other words, subjects of his. Another interesting example is not in Paul's writings, but it's Luke writing about Paul's preaching, and this is in Acts 17, 24 through 25. And interestingly, there is a context of Genesis creation here. Okay, so let's see what tapanta means in this context. This is Paul preaching in Athens. He says, The God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. Now, there are two occurrences of the all, tapanta here, and also a dative case example of the word for all, posse. So the first all here is not what Dr. Burgos would expect, I guess. Tapanta clearly is not the sum total of things that God made because it says that God made the world, the earth, or just the whole like physical cosmos, maybe the earth, the sky and sea. Oh, and also everything in it. So tapanta, the all, in the first occurrence here in verse 24, is the inhabitants of creation. It's a portion of creation. It's not all the created things. Does it have to be intelligent agents? I don't think so. Does it have to be living things? Could the everything in the world include rocks and oceans and forests? Uh, maybe, but look what he goes on to say when it says, since God himself gives to, this translation says, all mortals, that just says, to all, life and breath and all things. So he gives to all, 
The translator supplies mortals. What does he give? Life and breath. Oh, okay. So this would be what God gives to living beings. So then a rock, presumably a river, would not be included in the all here. And he says that in addition to life and breath he gives to all, it says, Tapanta, all things. All what things? Um, seemingly not only life and breath, but all the other things they need, all the other blessings that are required for them to be alive, or all the other necessary supplies, something like that. So the all, or the dative, to all, there are three occurrences of forms of the word all in this sentence. The first time it means the inhabitants of God's creation. The second time it means the living things within God's creation. And the third occurrence, the word all here means something like all the things needed by the living things. This is just a beautiful example of how flexible the word all is. It can be used in principle to refer to any set, any domain of things of a certain type. Romans 8, 31 and 32. If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us, all of us who, all of us Christians, obviously, will he not with him also give us tapanta? This translation says everything else. What is the all that this is referring to? Seemingly something like all the things we need, or maybe all the other blessings of the new covenant, such as eternal life or the kingdom, something like that. So here the translation, everything doesn't mislead. See, the problem with the translation, everything or all things in our English translations of New Testament writings is in English, things suggests but does not require unintelligent objects. The word things is used in opposition to people or selves. Things are usually assumed to not be thinking things. Usually, not always. So someone in English says, I know everything in this room. Well, that's kind of a strange statement. What does he mean? All the objects, all the furniture, all of the construction materials? Like, what does he mean? He knows all the things in this room. But notice we're assuming that he doesn't mean all the people that are in this room. Now, in Koine Greek, you can refer to groups of people or a little more broadly to groups of human and non-human intelligent agents using tapanta, the all. So it could be purely intelligent agents, selves. It could be all non-selves. It could be a mix of selves and non-selves. It just depends on the context. Romans 11, 33 through 36. This is one of those examples, I think, where Dr. Burgos would say, surely this is the Genesis creation. And I would have to say, please don't call me surely. And why do we have to take this to be about the Genesis creation? The passage says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? I take it that's still God we're talking about, not Jesus. Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him to receive a gift in return? For from him and through him and to him are tapanta, all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Now, why would the reader here think that the context demands creation? I have no idea. The context in the chapter is how Israel and the Gentiles fit into God's plans, now understood in light of the new revelation. The subjects under discussion include God's grace and his judgment. The all things here might be something like all the blessings of the new covenant, which are from God, through God, and to him, in that they serve his purposes and glorify him. So what things like forgiveness, salvation, eternal life, the kingdom of God? Or it could even mean just all believers. So then in the last line here, Paul would be saying that we all live this new life from God, through God, and to God. He very well might mean that. Because we know that in a number of places, by all things, Paul means intelligent agents and indeed, sometimes just the church, all of us believers in other words. 
Here's an example from Paul's writings where the all things is clearly not all the things created, and yet it's clearly a grouping of all selves. This is in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 11 and 12. He writes, Nevertheless, in the Lord, this is the Lord Jesus, I think, woman is not independent of man, or man independent of woman. For just as woman came from man, so man comes through woman. But all things come from God. Now, what is the all things here? I take it that it means all people, all human beings, men and women. In some sense, we're all from God. We're all creations of God. And if we're talking about membership in the new covenant community, we've all been put there through the grace of God. 1 Corinthians 2.15, those who are spiritual discern tapanta, and they are themselves subject to no one else's scrutiny. Those who are spiritual discern all things. All things. Hmm. Okay. The way that most translators take this is that all things are like all subject matters, all the things that need to be discerned, basically. And that reading makes perfect sense. I have no objection to that. I wonder if we could read it, though, as saying that the spiritual discern all the other people. And then Paul says, and they themselves are subject to no one else's scrutiny. So we're able to scrutinize others, but they, that is the the non-spiritual, but they are unable to scrutinize us. If that's right, then the all things would be the unspiritual. Either way, it's not a Genesis creation passage. No one thinks that, nor should they. 1 Corinthians 12, 4, and 6. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of services, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who activates tapanta in everyone. I assume he means all the variety of activities that occur, uh, which would include uh, the gifts and services. So there again, you have tapanta referring to a decently well-defined domain, and here it's a domain of activities, workings, actions, not properly speaking of things, whether intelligent or unintelligent things. First Corinthians twelve nineteen, Paul's talking about uh, the different roles played by different people in the body of Christ, and he says, if all, that is, tapanta, were a single member, in other words, a single body part, where would the body be? Okay, so what's the all here referred to? The context supplies it pretty clearly. It's all the parts of the body. And of course, the body parts here are representing individual Christians or maybe types of individual Christians. So again, in a sense, uh, through the metaphor, tapanta is being used to talk about people, who's and not mere what's, we would say. 2 Corinthians 4, 14 and 15, we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will bring us with you into his presence. Yes, everything, tapanta, is for your sake, so that grace, as it extends to more and more people, may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. What's the everything here? It's not entirely clear, but it could be something like all the blessings of the new covenant. 2 Corinthians 5.17, the context is he's talking about salvation, being reconciled to God. He says, So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything, tapanta, has become new. What's the everything? Maybe uh, it could be taken impersonally, like, elements of your character that have been renewed through Christ. Uh, Or look, both everythings here could be taken to be people, right? The old man, the old people have died. Uh, The new people have come to life. Again, either way, it's not the Genesis creation. It's typically not the Genesis creation when Paul starts talking about tapanta, Now, the favorite proof text, aside from John 1, of the idea that Christ created is in Colossians 1, and what Paul does with Tapanta there is very interesting. It says, He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for 
In him, all things in heaven and earth were created. Now, if you just prefer to stop there and rip a clause of a sentence out of its context, for in him, that is, through Christ, all things in heaven and on earth were created. Yeah, that might sound like the all things should be the totality of creation. Although it doesn't say the heavens and the earth and all in them, it says all things in heaven and on earth. So that should make you think right there that it's not this sense of all things that Dr. Burgos badly wants to find in Paul's writings. Again, if it's all things in heaven and earth, that's got to be a subset of the all things, which is the sum total of God's creation, right? Now, which all things did he have in mind? Paul goes on to specify what he means by all things. I take it that he has roughly in mind the same set of all things through this passage, So let's not just proof text and take our favorite clause of this paragraph. Let's keep going and see what it says. For in him, all things in heaven and on earth were created. Great. Which things? Okay. He tells us now. Things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. Who's the him? it's clearly Christ. That should make you realize that we're talking about the new creation, not the old creation, because there weren't any men around at the time of the old creation. And also this entire context is post-resurrection. But without going into the entire passage, what are these visible and invisible things, thrones or dominions or rulers or powers? Seemingly, they are the leadership structure of the seen realm and the unseen realm. I assume he would mean like the positions of rulership in the coming kingdom. And maybe he means uh, a reordering also of the heavenly powers because he talks about the invisible realm here. But notice how he continues. He himself, again, Jesus, is before Tapanta, all things, and in him Tapanta hold together. If he's before all things, is talking about a position of prominence, right? He's the firstborn. That should clue you in right there that he's talking about a ruler and those who are subjected under him. And in him, all things hold together, this same kingdom of selves. Notice what he says right after verse 18. He, Christ, is the head of the body, the church. That could be the main tapanta he has in mind. Paul continues, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself Tapanta, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. What are the all things in this last usage here? All the things that are going to be reconciled to God through Christ. So they have to be intelligent beings. And he says, whether on earth or in heaven. So seemingly he means humans and angels. That's how I take this passage. Okay, so with this general usage in hand, that tapanta, I mean, in principle, it could mean all the things created, but that's not typically what you see in Paul. But you do see it being used for the church or for all the beings who are going to be reconciled to God. So the church plus the angels that haven't rebelled, something like that. I guess you could say all the inhabitants of the world to come or of the kingdom. That's a typical usage in Paul. All things can also be just activities or blessings or things like that. Okay, so in the middle of this discussion about food sacrifice to idols, and again, there's nothing whatever in the context that demands the Genesis creation is being discussed here. No, Dr. Burgos, not even the prepositions. Those perfectly well fit a new creation reading as well as they fit a Genesis creation reading. So Paul writes, again, contrasting Christians with pagans. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, or more neutrally, and for whom we are, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist, or more neutrally, through whom we are. So what is he saying here? 
I'm going to assume in interpreting it that he has in mind the same set of things both times. I don't think the grammar requires that, but I guess it's a simpler reading. So if we can make sense of it where he's referring to the same batch, the same domain of things both times, I think that would be preferable. That's what the creation reading does. But again, this needn't be taken that way. And based on Paul's other usage, here are two ways that you can take it. You might think that the tapanta here means just all the blessings we've received as members of the new covenant. So for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all the blessings of the new covenant and for whom we live or for whom we are. And one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all the blessings of the new covenant and through whom we live or are. This makes perfect sense of Paul in light of other things that he's written and also, as I mentioned, what Luke wrote about him. As far as I can see, there's no reason to prefer the Genesis creation interpretation over the one I just gave. And there is a reason to prefer this one over the Genesis interpretation, which is, again, that in the Old Testament and equally well in the New Testament, it's assumed that there's exactly one creator And this is God called the Father in the New Testament, or the Lord God, or our Father in heaven, God the Father, etc. Here's another way you could take it. Maybe the all things are all us members of the body of Christ. Yet for us there is one God the Father, from whom are all of us Christians, and for whom we live, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all of us Christians, and through whom we live. I guess all things considered, I slightly prefer the first interpretation I gave. And I think this explains why, in this particular context, Paul throws in these extra clauses, right? He could have just said, yet for us Christians, there is one God the Father and one Lord Jesus Christ. Why did he add those extra clauses, from whom are tapanta and for whom we are, and then through whom tapanta and through whom we are? Why did he bother to add those? Well, it could be he's thinking in contrast to the pagans. The pagans who believe in many gods and many lords, they believe that they have to serve each one of this vast pantheon of higher and lower deities because those deities are believed to control different areas of human interest. There's always a god of war, a god of fertility, a god of the kitchen, a god of home life, a patron deity of the city. The blessings that you need from the unseen realm are believed by pagans to come through this big network of higher up and lower down deities. In contrast to that, for us Christians, all the things we need or all the blessings we enjoy as Christians, they come from the one God and through his servant, the one Lord, the human Lord Jesus. So I think this explains why he throws those two clauses in. So that's all for this episode. It's gone a bit long. Sorry about that. But the points I've been trying to make in great detail are that sometimes confident assumptions by mainstream scholars are just that. And in their imagination, a text demands their interpretation, but a more sober examination shows that it's not so. No Christian who takes Revelation seriously wants to come up with an arbitrary explaining away of a passage. But I think you should agree when you look at the totality of Paul's writings that the two interpretations I just gave are not arbitrarily explain away what any sensible person would take to be a passage about the Genesis creation. If you subtract the background of that traditional assumption of Nicene views, then yeah, it's just not obvious at all, is it? Another time, we'll have to talk about the very favorite deity of Christ proof text, which is the prologue to the fourth gospel. But that will take another in-depth discussion and probably more than one in-depth discussion. This week's thinking music has consisted of two tracks. The first is Fuller Forizon. The second is La Grande Village. 
They're from an album called It's Time for Adventure by Komiku. As always, there are links on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org where you can listen to or download these entire tracks. If you love the Trinities podcast, please share this episode on social media like Twitter or Facebook and help other people to find the podcast by giving us an honest rating and review in the iTunes store for your country. You can also support the Trinities podcast by giving a certain donation per episode. If you're interested in that, please visit patreon.com trinities. Finally, let us know what you think. Give us a comment on the blog post for this episode or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash trinities. The Trinities Podcast is supported by and made for thinking believers like you. Thanks for your support, prayers, and encouragement. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.